Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of Marissa Podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try to bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the next generation of science leaders that it fosters. My name's Alex, and I'll be your host today. Uh, unfortunately, Nicole isn't able to join us today, but nevertheless, with us today is a fully tenured professor with areas of research and expertise spanning microbiology, field ecology, evolution, and probably what you know best for, genetics. He serves on the editorial board for five different genetics and mycology journals. He's the Associate Chair of Biology and Graduate Studies and is part of the McMaster University Biosafety Committee. On top of it all, he turns out high-impact research at a phenomenal rate with almost two dozen peer-reviewed papers published in the past six months alone. Dr. Zhu, it's a privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Alex. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute honor to have you with us today, and we'll be delving deeper into your mycology research, the agricultural and public health aspect of it, uh, and the implications of your research, as well as how it's developed alongside genome sequencing technology. Uh, and lastly, what a lot of people probably want to know is the role of undergraduates in your lab and how they can get involved, what you look for when you take undergrads into your lab. But before we get into any of that, uh, would you just be able to give us a sort of brief background about your own academic journey and how you ended up at McMaster and what drove you towards your field of research? Sure. Um, I studied as an undergraduate in agricultural science, in agronomy, where I took very different sets of courses in plant biology, uh, pests, pathogens, soil science, climate, and uh, agricultural management, as well as economics. And then through that study, I found that microorganisms were playing really essential roles, uh, not only as beneficial microorganisms, such as nitrogen-fixing bacteria, helping the legumes, but also as pathogens um, and, uh, and uh, organisms, symbiotic organisms in, in uh, pests. So after I did my finishing my undergraduate, I went to graduate school to specialize in agricultural microbiology. Uh, that's when I turned into uh, edible mushrooms. It's a very niche crop at that time in the 80s, but now progressively become more and more pop popular. And that was all in China. And in 1991, I came to Canada and spent about five and a half years at the University of Toronto, where I worked on the genetics of mushrooms. And that was the button mushroom, the one that you usually see in the, uh, in the grocery market. But the button mushroom, even though it's a big crop, it's the second most important crop in Canada, uh, there are very few researchers are working on that crop. So to broaden my field of research, I joined the Duke University to work on medical fungi, on working on the population genetics, epidemiology, and evolution. So I spent three and a half years at the Duke. Then in 2000, I joined McMaster as assistant professor. And we have been working on a variety of fungal uh, organisms from saprophytes, like some of the mushrooms, to plant fungal pathogens, to animal fungal pathogen, such as the white nose syndrome fungus, causing uh, infecting bats, and also human fungal pathogens. 
and I have collaborated with colleagues uh, from all over the world. So many of the publications that you mentioned was really a product of collaborative research with colleagues from Europe, Asia, and North America, and also South America and Australia as well. So it's a, it's a, a very interesting and pleasant journey uh, so far. And I look forward to the continuing years at McMaster. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on a few things that, that I'd love to, to pick your ear on throughout the podcast here. Uh, mainly, you, you discussed that you focus on, on human fungal pathogens as well. Uh, and a lot of your research, is, in recent years at least, is focused on cryptococcus and fungal meningitis that arises from it, as well as uh, the, the, the induction of aspergillosis uh, from Aspergillus fumigatus. Uh, and that mainly only affects immunocompromised people, but I would love to hear what your research has been on it so far, uh, what your findings have been and how that's been able to influence public health. Sure, so we'll talk about the public health first on humans. Um, for human fungal pathogens, we have worked on several groups that causes uh, superficial to systemic infections. So we worked on the environmental niches of candida species, and some of them are mitodrugal resistance in and around Hamilton. Uh, including some of the undergraduate populations. Uh, when, we, when I first joined the McMaster, I was teaching second year microbiology course. I sampled everybody or everybody sampled themselves uh, using uh, Q-tip and then we were able to determine the prevalence of candida organisms, uh, species and um, their species distribution among the undergraduates. And one of the undergraduates, this is going to be talked about later, about, I guess about undergraduate research in my lab, um, she also sampled her whole family, just a simple cotton swab around the oral upper and the lower gingiva. And she, we were, she was able to publish the first undergraduate paper in my lab from that research experience course, not even her undergraduate thesis course. Um, so that's one group, and that group can cause superficial uh, infections, including um, oral mucosa and skin infections, athlete's foot, et cetera, to systemic infection in the bloodstream. And it's the third or fourth most common, depending on the patient group, of uh, invasive microbial infections of the bloodstream. So some of them are immunocompromised, but many of them are actually not immunocompromised. Uh, and this is the same for the cryptococcus, where about 15 years ago, in, along the West Coast, a large number of apparently immunocompetent people were infected with the cryptococcus. And we were among the first group to identify the origins of that outbreak. That outbreak, which started about 15 years ago, is now expanding into lowland BC and the North US Pacific Northwest, infecting uh, not only people, including both immunocompromised and immunocompetent people, but also uh, domesticated animals, including pets and wild animals as well, including dolphin and some of the sea animals. So we are able to analyze those populations and compare them with those from other parts of the world to identify the potential origins. So that's cryptococcus. Um, so one of the things that we have been analyzing 
is the emerging phenomenon of hybridization among species within this cryptococcal uh, complex. And we have analyzed a variety of traits uh, in the nuclear genome, mitochondrial genome, and the phenotypic traits such as drug resistance, uh, virulence traits such as high temperature growth ability, and uh, melanin and capsule production. So those are the main virulence traits. So we have found that hybridization, primarily brought up by probably human anthropogenic influence, human influence of the previously isolated lineages in different parts of the world. So for example, from Africa, Europe, and South America, and then they're mixed together. Now we have a lot of hybrids. So they have, some of them have superior abilities of being more resistant to drugs, more resistant to abiotic stress, and produce high amount of virulence factors. So we're trying to understand the genetic basis for those and the implication in the future for public health. So that's Cryptococcus, uh, the second group of human fungal pathogen that we work on. And the third group is what you uh, mentioned, Aspergillus fumigatus. So we got into this um, because uh, Ken Western News, uh, Margaret Monroe interviewed us, I guess now about six years ago, or no, eight years ago. And that interview was widely published across Canada. Uh, the simple question that she asked was that whether there's agricultural fungicide induced resistance in Canada for Aspergillus fumigatus. And my answer was at that time was we don't, we didn't know, uh, we don't know. And I told her that we're gonna be looking into it. So for the last eight years or so, we have been studying population genetics and the epidemiology of Aspergillus fumigatus. And we have obtained populations from around Hamilton, from agricultural populations, urban populations, and the human uh, samples, human populations. And then we compared them with those from across the globe, over 2,000 and some strains. And now we are actively collaborating with international colleagues uh, from Europe, from Asia, and South America and uh, Oceania to look at the global population structure from soil of this organism. Because soil is really the primary ecological niche of this organism. And we are in constant contact with the soil. But most of the research published so far have been from infected people. So we wanted to understand more of the broader population and then the relationship between the environmental population with the human population. So we have projects, uh, soil samples from across the globe, and we are actively isolating them. I've had quite a few undergraduate thesis students working on this project, working on samples from New Zealand, from France, from uh, Iceland, uh, from Northwest Territory, and from China, etc. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's incredible. And I think one thing that you touched upon, uh, which again has been another focus of your research is, is looking at hybridization of the, these fungal pathogens. I, I actually thought that it was incredibly interesting. You, you had one recent publication 
where you looked at, uh, I think it was populations of, of Aspergillus fumigatus in greenhouses across China. And you found that their resistance uh, towards triazole antifungals were, were caused by different mutations. So you were finding that the mutations themselves or the, the resistance themselves weren't necessarily just from hybridization, but they were developing resistance on their own. Um, and I sort of just wanted to hear your, your sort of perspective on that and how that might influence public health laws or if you've gotten to that stage of sort of using that as evidence to, to convey that the broad use of fungicides in agriculture might have uh, detrimental effects in the long run. Yeah, excellent question, Alex. Um, we were really surprised um, that the triazole resistance level was so high. Almost 80% of the isolates that we isolated, 200, over 230 isolates, and over 80% of them were resistant to one of the two primary drugs that are currently recommended for treating people with aspergillosis. Um, and we were able to identify for some of them the potential, potential mutations. So, but then when we think back, it might not be as surprising because greenhouse, greenhouses are some of the most intensive lands for agriculture and they're heavily managed where a lot of fungicides, fertilizers, et cetera, were used to encourage the growth of the crop as much as, as fast as they can and as much as they can. So, but that, the implication of that, I think it's huge in that most of the time, those fungal pathogens, they can be associated with whatever vegetables and crops that we, we eat. And uh, if they're consumed by immunocompromised population, and I think they could be uh, suffering from drug-resistant aspergillosis, which based on the current uh, recommendation of treatment, uh, those people may uh, will suffer failure of those treatments. So we are, along with my collaborators in, in China, looking into the relationship of those agricultural uh, greenhouse populations and more broadly agricultural populations um, to the human populations within that region to see the linkage. And I think the, the end, my predicted kind of uh, outcome is that we're gonna have to reduce the use. Otherwise, the human population uh, would really suffer. Absolutely. And I think uh, one great thing that, that your research has been able to do is it's been able to compile that evidence because otherwise no one would be able to, to convey to public health agencies that something needs to change. And I think closer to home, so not looking across the world at China, but looking at, at Hamilton, Ontario, I think you also conducted a, a, a very recent research paper where you found that they weren't that these, uh, these Aspergillus fumigatus uh, strains weren't just resistant to azole uh, anti, uh, antifungals, which are the primary uh, drug given, but they're also resistant or they're developing resistance to amphotericin, uh, which is sort of like the next level and you don't wanna use it as often. Uh, so I was wondering if you could also discuss, firstly for our listeners, what the difference is between azole antifungals and amphotericin. Uh, antifungals um, and what the implications of resistance might be in the local Hamilton community? Sure. Yeah, that's a very good question as well. Um, so 
there are currently three major, I guess four major drug categories that are used to uh, treat all fungal infections. Um, one category is called the polyins, and amphotericin B is one of the major representatives. Amphotericin B interact with a very special component in the fungal cell membrane called ergosterol. Uh, by directly interacting them and then disrupt the membrane fluidity, fluidity. Okay, so it's a fungicidal drug. But because of similarity between augusterol in fungi and cholesterol in humans, even though they're distinct different molecules, but they're chemically very, very similar. So there's a high toxicity to humans, renal toxicity and other kinds of toxicity. So therefore, typically that drug is not used unless uh, the infecting agent is resistant to other types of drugs. And then the other three types of drugs, uh, one is um, flocytosin, which is the analog of uh, cytosin, the nucleotide, which would disrupt the DNA synthesis, et cetera, but it can also potentially have some side effects because of the um, similarity that we use the same nucleotide for our DNA. And then the triazoles act on the enzyme that synthesize agosterol. So that has been the main drug for treating cryptococcus and um, aspergillus. And the last category is the, is the um, beta-glucan synthesized inhibitors. Uh, you know, fungi have cell wall and humans, we don't. So that's a pretty good drug target. But at the same time, you know, all fungi have that cell wall and it's difficult to be, uh, to dis design effective drugs that will work with many of them. So triazo resistance has been the dominant report, dominantly reported because of the wide use in clinics. And when we look at the Hamilton population, we didn't find triazo resistance drug uh, strains, either in the agriculture fields that agriculture fungicide have been used, we did not find any in our urban parks and uh, in the, including like master forests. And we did not find any in the, uh, in the patient population that were collected from uh, Hamilton General Hospital. But when we were looking at the profile for amphotericin B resistance, we found that a significant proportion of our students were tolerant or resistant to it. And that really surprised us because as far as we know, you know the, those strains have not been exposed to polyene drugs, at least not intentionally. So the, the hypothesis that we are currently working on is that there are other kinds of stress response genes in the Hamilton population that are somehow either mutated or upregulated, making them more able to resist the amphotericin B generated stress on the cells. So the implication of our research for that part was that if the patient in around Hamilton failed the child treatment, they should not be directly going to the amphotericin B treatment as is recommended, currently recommended in uh, Europe and North America and across the world, that's the recommendation. For Hamilton population, we think that that's not the optimum route. They should be tested for the susceptibility before they are 
prescribed for the second treatment. I see. And and I think what we've seen is that your research, regardless, I mean, you you like you said, you've got this research going on in Europe, Oceania, uh, China, Canada, across the globe, you, you have all of these different projects uh, running. And I was wondering if you've been able to sort of use that uh, in the, the field of public health, if you've been able to sort of help direct policies and, and inform them that certain fungicides might not be used in agriculture, if you've been able to use any of your research to help direct uh, public law in that, in that aspect. Yeah, um, that's a, another very good question. So in Canada, uh, because polyene type of drugs like amphotericin B and the related drugs, they are not used in agriculture. So uh, it really does not apply over here in Canada. Globally, certainly there's been call using the one health approach by the WHO to reduce the use of triazo fungicides, azo fungicides. So directly or indirectly, uh, we have impacted that kind of policy. And one of the things that has happened in Southern China, where I also collaborated. Uh, a few years ago, we published the yeast uh, population and the drug resistance profile this, on this uh, South China island um, called Hainan Island. We've, we found a high frequency of individuals that have never taken the antifungal drug and they contain strains of uh, drug resistance to triazole drugs, including fluconazole, Ichukanazole, etc. So that was that was published, and over the last five years, that uh, island governments um, have reduced the agricultural fungicide use based on the publication. And our recent data from patients uh, in the hospitals showed the frequency of drug resistance has decreased. Yeah, so the paper was just accepted. It's not online yet. It was accepted uh, early last week. Actually, That's incredible. Yeah, earlier this week. <laughs> I just went That's through incredible. the so it come out. So it shows definitely that the reduction in agricultural fungicide use could impact the natural population and the human population in resistance. I mean, that, that's absolutely incredible. And, and congratulations for it as well. Just thinking about the fact that your research itself, what, whether it's directly or indirectly, can influence, uh, influence that and as a whole improve the, the health of the community in, in those, even if it's across the globe. I mean, that's, that must be such a gratifying feeling. Uh, yeah. And now I think uh, just, just to sort of shift from public health to, to the, the implications of your research in agriculture, I think there was one publication where you discussed how uh, up to 10 to 15% of all crops around the world die each year due to any disease. And up to 80% of those 15% are due to fungal related diseases. And I was wondering how your research, looking specifically uh, at the rhizospheres, how that has been able to help show uh, what is agriculturally acceptable, what should perhaps not be, uh, not be used in agriculture and how you're able to sort of shape that agricultural perspective with your research. Yeah, um, excellent. 
excellent question. Um, for the agricultural component, I have, again, because of my background in agriculture and in epidemiology and genetics, I have collaborated with colleagues from other parts of the world, primarily in China, where we look at uh, nematode pests, where we have biocontrol uh, against those pests. So nematodes themselves, they cost hundreds of billions of dollars of loss uh, crops every year. And fungal diseases for fruit trees, for vegetable crops, and for some of the main crops, and also for cannabis, uh, we have recently been working on that. They are some of the primary pathogens impacting all of those crops. And I have been collaborating with colleagues on all of those crops, uh, often as an uh, advisor to students' thesis and helping them guide their data analysis and manuscript uh, writing. So I'm associated with quite a lot of the primary research on agricultural pathogens and pests. From there, we have found that there are several broad, very broad phenomena in that some species like the Fusarium uh, species, Oxysporium, Commune, uh, et cetera, they can impact many, many different crops and trees, fruit trees included. And another group is Autonaria autonata, which we have recently started working on. This pathogen can not only impact, uh, in, in, infect plants, causing like over 300 crop diseases, uh, diseases in over 300 crops. Okay. But it can also cause human diseases. So those ones would potentially represent the direct impact of agricultural practices in humans. So through those kinds of research, we are trying to link the kind of uh, meta populations from different environments in nature, in agricultural fields, in human populations a bit more tightly and try to identify potential approaches to address this problem from a holistic perspective rather than just targeting one small component of it. Now, part of the research, which also probably not surprised to you, is that we found many of those pathogens have natural enemies. Pathogens and pests have natural enemies. Um, so those are, we call it, um, probiotics of our control agents. So for example, the nematodes, the root rot nematode uh, has a natural enemy that we have been working on, I've been associated with um, by looking at the natural population structure. And we have a paper coming out soon as well. <laughs> um, and that uh, can control those nematodes. They, they produce those really nifty uh, trapping devices um, that can capture, actively capture the nematodes and then kill them and then digest those nematodes. And we also found other microorganisms within the nematodes itself or in, and in the soil of the nematodes that act as inducers in the interaction between the fungi, the biological control agent, and the nematode. So there's a lot of dynamics going on that if we understand them well, well then we could potentially better control this uh, ecosystem by biological means, by modulating the biological environment rather than by using uh, pesticides and fungicides and bacterial sites. Absolutely. 
And I think if you if you're able to find that position of equilibrium where you can use the, the nematode trapping uh, fungi right. on their own, you you would be able to not only help increase the the crop yield, but economically speaking, that would be remarkable for for so many different communities. And the implications of that would surpass just agriculture, and it could help countries as a whole. So that's very, very exciting. Uh, and now, so just to move move forward, I'd also love to talk about how the development of genome sequencing technologies, because a lot of your uh, research is focused on the evolution of organisms, on the evolution of fungi, and that typically looks at uh, looking at uh, non-conserved sequences, like the, the inter, interspace regions in, in RNA, which are removed in the maturation of ribosomal RNA, um, and also mitochondrial DNA, which I think is, is a very big focus in your research. So looking at how in the, in the past 21 years since you've come to McMaster, if not more, maybe 30 years uh, when you're working at Duke or, or still back in China, uh, how is the development of genome sequencing technology facilitated the advancement of your research as well? And has it broadened the scope of your research or has it helped propel your research even for, even farther forward? Yeah, I think it has um, affected almost all biomedical uh, scientists, uh, especially in the last 15 years since the um, commercialization of second generation DNA sequencing technology. When I first started at the U of T, now this is almost exactly 30 years ago in 1991 as, my, as a graduate student, you know, we would need to spend to prepare for the whole day or sometimes two or three days to sequence one tiny DNA fragment. And one fragment might be sometimes sufficient for publication at that time. Um, and things have definitely changed. Um, so our Major, one of the major research in my lab is to identify the relationships among organisms using genetic markers, DNA sequences. And we have been primarily using, for different species, using the ones, as you mentioned, that are diagnostic, uh, that are polymorphic into helping us reveal the relationships. And over the last, at least over the last 15 years, we have gradually switched into genomics. Um, I'm relatively slow, adapt, slow adapter of that <laughs> technology uh, compared to some of the really fast adapters. Uh, I'm not the slowest. <laughs> um, but we definitely have been expanding the repertoire of uh, genetic markers in analyzing relationships. And the more markers you use, the better the resolution would be. And we have been primarily comparing, uh, one of the focuses compare the evolution of mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome. And that was due to one of the research projects we, which we have is to answer the question of why do most, in most organisms, mitochondria are inherited uniparentally. So to answer that question, from an evolutionary perspective, we have to understand the relative rates and patterns of evolution in nature of the two genomes, mitochondria and the nuclear genomes. And we have identified that many different patterns. Uh, we, our lab was the first one to identify any gene in the nuclear genome that when it's knocked out, it resulted in 
biparental mitochondrial inheritance from a uniparental inheritance. And then we also identified that environmental factors could potentially influence those. And then we have identified in many fungi, from mushrooms to cryptococcus and to plant uh, pathogens, that mitochondria in nature, there's signatures of recombination, different from what we typically think of a uniparental inheritance. So those are opening you know, uh, a lot of previously uh, debated, a lot of the previously held dogma about mitochondria genetics in nature. And recently, we have had two papers. Actually, one was um, last year and one just published. You probably have just seen, just released this week in the journal Pathogens. We have been analyzing more of the uh, genomes of human fungal pathogens. The one that was just published this, this week was a genome-wide association study of trial resistance in Aspergillus fumigatus. And in that study, we were able to answer the question of why do so many drug-resistant strains, trial resistant strains, um, that did not have, uh, why many of those strains that are resistant did not have any mutation in the drug target, which has been the primary diagnostic marker. And we were able to identify dozens of uh, novel SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms in candidate genes that we should look into. And now that is, in, in my view, it's very significant in that by identifying those mutations, we are generating new hypotheses for experimental biologists to validate the function of those mutations. So genomics nowadays, from our perspective, is a very, very important tool to generate those now hypotheses, including hypotheses about the new species, hybridization, new phenomena in nature, and new drug resistance genes and, uh, and then um, mutations that make certain strains more virulent. So um, that's generated that hypothesis for experimental investigation, which some of them we are going to be carrying on ourselves. But it also uh, generates markers that we could use to design diagnostic biomarkers so that we could directly identify whether the specific strain that is infecting a patient, causing disease in a patient, has that mutation or not. And if they have, then they should not be treated with certain drug. And that is much, much faster than uh, the traditional approach of culture and then doing susceptibility testing, et cetera. So this is going to contribute to this um, point of care um, approach to be very fast. And that can be applied to all kinds of uh, economic situations and environments. And then, help this personalize the medicine in that, you know, everybody will be infected with specific strain, you potentially have your own genotype. And if you have that, you should be treated by certain drugs and not others. And I think you get to expedite the, the whole process, which in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it would contribute to, to saving people's lives because especially immunocompromised, if, if they get the, these fungal infections, either fungal meningitis or, or aspergillosis, it, it might not necessarily be fatal uh, to immunocompetent people, but immunocompromised definitely uh, knowing quick sooner which 
uh, antifungal medication would help them could definitely be a lifesaver. And that's incredibly promising. And it, it's amazing to see that the, the genome sequencing technology has helped expedite your research, which would help you uh, move forward in publishing all of these papers. And I know that recently, so shifting away from just uh, sequencing, I guess, fungal pathogens, but you also sequenced a, a cyclosporin fungus, tolyplicadium uh, inflatum. I think I'm pronouncing that right, hopefully. Um, and and the, the implications of that are incredible because the cyclosporins themselves have medical implications. So, so they can help with arthritis or they can help mitigate Crohn's disease symptoms. So you're also able to, to determine what sequences are, are helping uh, people's immune systems and helping people's uh, health as well, which that, that's incredible, I think. Yeah, so this, uh, because we're working with a variety of uh, my, my, microbes from a variety of environments, and we're screening their bioactive compounds. So one of the things that I have not mentioned um, is the white nose syndrome fungus. Well, my collaborators and I, so this collaborator from BC, where the white nose syndrome has not arrived yet, but in pretty much the whole Eastern part of North America, uh, four species of bats have basically disappeared, uh, almost extinct. Uh, millions of them have been killed by this fungus, Pseudogymnoascus destructans, that's the name. So my collaborators at the Thompson Rivers University and Wildlife Conservation of Canada, we, are trying to, we have been trying to develop a probiotic approach to control the invasion of white-nose syndrome, prevent the invasion. So we, develop, we developed a cocktail containing four microorganisms, all of them have shown activity and each of them have different kinds of um, growth range, growth, optimal growth temperature, etc. And we have applied them first to check for their safety in that they should not cause any disease. And second, whether they can grow in those bat environment. And yes, indeed they can. And they're not causing any uh, adverse symptoms. So now we are getting up to apply those probiotic cocktail across the hibernacular and the roosters uh, in Western Canada, primarily in BC. So BC has the highest number of bat species uh, in Canada. And despite the bad, the bad name for bats in that they carry the coronavirus um, uh, disease and pathogens, the viruses, bats are incredibly important for the ecosystem as well as in agriculture. So hopefully our approach uh, would help the, would prevent the spread of white nose syndrome to, to uh, Western Canada. And in the, even in the US, uh, Western states, they would like to try our cocktail, but we have to go through some regulatory uh, issues before they can try it. Yeah. And yeah, and the, yeah those, fung those uh, probiotic bacteria, they secrete secondary metabolites that can kill not only this fungus, we have tried actually uh, aspergillus as well. Yeah, I, I think just uh, just to draw the comparison between uh, coronavirus and white nose syndrome, just to reassure all of the listeners that uh, pseudogymnoascus destructans can't uh, can't harm humans. Uh, I think we're we're able to be carriers. So if you're in contact with a bat that has it, you can uh, transmit it to to different bat caves, which 
could be detrimental to the ecosystem. But in terms of human health, uh, I, th I think we're safe on that one. Yes, very safe. Um, <laughs> fungus cannot grow at about 23 degrees. And we are 36, 37 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now sort of just shifting, shifting now to, to what maybe a lot of people are, are incredibly interested to hear uh, is the role of undergraduates in your lab. I mean, you're, you're very uh, productive and proactive in, in getting high impact publications very frequently. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of people uh, want to follow in your footsteps. So before finding out what you look for in undergraduates that want to go into your lab, if you were to meet someone that wants to follow your footsteps and maybe they're, they're just starting their undergraduate right now, what words of advice would you like to give them? Hmm. I have been very impressed by McMaster's undergraduate student population. They're very inquisitive, um, very resourceful and interactive. And have been very incredibly fortunate to work with many of them. Uh, I, I really lost count of how many students have worked in my lab. And I would say that probably at least half of the students who have worked in my lab have resulted in a first author co-authorship. So they, their contribution are immense and I'm very grateful for, for what they have done, um, not only to uh, our research, but to the research in general at McMaster. Um, so as for career, for career advice, I think we all have to follow what really interests us. And this is one of the indicators that I use uh, to, to identify whether certain student would, would be a good fit. So interest and really honest, uh, self-driven interest. So why, with that interest, then you're you know, trying to dig into things of uh, interest into you, identify the questions that uh, people have not asked or answered. And quite once we have that kind of approach and the McMaster program-based learning and inquiry kind of learning, actually cultivate our students that approach, uh, then I will find resources to try to identify the specific problems within certainly some of those larger problems that you are interested in to address. So identify the feasibility um, uh, and, and uh, the resources that, that um, will help you succeed. So you probably have seen based on how, uh, based on the last 40, 40 some minutes of talk that we work with a variety of issues. And some of those questions were actually brought up de novo by undergraduate students. The white nose syndrome research was by undergraduate thesis student. He said, he came to me about six, seven years ago. said, JP, I wanted to work on uh, this fungus. I know your, your fungal lab, would you be interested to work on this fungus? I said, I have no work on it. But sure, if you could get some strengths, contact those people, telling them that you're from my lab and see what, what we can get. So he wrote to uh, the Canadian CFIA, Canadian Food and Inspection Agency, the Canadian Wildlife uh, Safety uh, and Biosafety Organization, and the people in uh, Atlantic Canada, 
who have been collecting those samples. And he got them and said, hey, okay, let's work on it. And that was an undergraduate student. Um, and he opened up a door for, you know, for a PhD student who graduated last year uh, for his PhD thesis and opened up a collaboration with uh, my colleagues in Western Canada. So, um, so it's that kind of interest that, especially if it's brought over from students, I really highly treasure those kind of perspectives. Yeah, so that's, if you want to remember one thing, I would say this is one thing that you have to be interested in what we do. <laughs> exactly, and I think the, the example you gave is just, it, it encompasses everything you said. It, it, it encompasses the fact that the student was both self-driven and motivated and interested in, in the topic. And I think to, to sort of go out of your way to try and find something new to investigate, um, underneath an invest, uh, underneath a researcher who's been doing it for 20 or 30 years, for you to be able to say, hold on, this is something brand new and it might be worth his time and his his grant money, uh, you you definitely have to have a, a profound interest. So it's it's great to see that an undergrad was behind uh, research that, that you've conducted in recent years and hopefully it's, it's helping repair uh, or maintain Canada's ecosystem and, and protecting the, the bad populations. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's remarkable. Another example, um, hopefully this paper will be published. We just received the reviews back today, uh, this morning. It's last year. So this is the four undergraduate students from McMaster who approached me, uh, showed me their paper on COVID-19. So I said, oh, that's interesting but I don't think this is sufficient. This is um, the approach, the analysis uh, is not really up to scientific standard, even though I'm, I'm not, I've never worked with COVID-19. But I suggested, I said, if you really want to work on it, let's look at um, the temporal dynamics of COVID-19 between age groups and between the two sexes to see over the last year, has there been any change in the prevalence of COVID-19 among different age groups. So, you know, then we have been working on this uh, for about a year with the group, the four undergraduate, uh, undergraduate students. And they were first year, they were just finished first year. And they were very driven. Wow. So um, about a month ago, we, uh, two, about a month and a half ago, we submitted the manuscript and um, we got the review back. And now it looks like it's, it's going to, um, be accepted, hopefully. <laughs> so we have yeah, that's five, incredible. Yeah, we have about five days uh, wow. to uh, to revise the manuscript. Um, so that's we received the feedback today, and about five days. Um, so this is you know undergraduate driven that I had no experience either, but it's their interest, and I'm here to help them. Absolutely, and and I think it's it's really important to to show as well. Yes, it, it's great to have the expertise. It's great to have all of the experience. But at the end of the day, if you have the passion for it, if you have the interest for it, then if you do sufficient reading, and, and that's probably the most arduous uh, part of, of the entire research process. Yeah. But if you do enough reading, you're able to, to get up to par and you're able to, to really create a paper that's, that's worth publishing. And I think the fact that you've got first years approaching you with, with a, paper, a, a COVID paper, no less, uh, that that's truly that's really impressive. Um, so hopefully uh, that publication comes soon for you and for them uh, more than anything, because uh, I think 
undergraduate research representation is, is very important to sort of motivate people to continue uh, researching projects that, that they're in love with as well. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, McMaster students, especially in the life sciences, uh, most people are interested in uh, professional schools. And I think that's a very legitimate um, desire. And I try to accommodate those people, trying to help them grow. Um, that might not show in my undergraduate classes where I might be a mean professor, <laughs> but for the people who uh, work directly with me, I really do try to do my best to help them grow. And as I mentioned that probably about half of the undergraduate students who have worked in my lab ended up being co-authors. And many of them did go to professional schools in medicine, dentistry, uh, even law school, uh, working on bioethics and a genetic counseling, etc. So for the last few years, almost every year, we have had people who did their undergraduate thesis project in my lab going to one of those. Uh, quite often, uh, multiple people going to those kind of professional schools. And many of them end up going to uh, graduate schools as well. And quite a, quite a few of the of the current graduate students in my lab are from our undergraduate program, and I have really uh, enjoyed working with them, appreciate their contribution to my research. So we have a very very good undergraduate population at Mac, and I feel very privileged to be here. Yeah, and and I think just to to sort of wrap things up, I think it's it's been incredible. Uh, getting to, to learn more about your research and getting to learn about the public health implications, the agricultural implications, how your research is, is shifting social policies on, on this all around the world. Um, and especially it, it was remarkable getting to hear about how undergrads have played such a significant role in not just helping you with your research, but creating ideas that you've been able to run with for, for years now. And it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. And I think anyone, uh, who, who takes Bio2CO3, like you said, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult course. Um, but end of the day, one thing that it exposes you to is such a vast uh, variety of, of different research that's happening right now. And, and the reason I, I personally found it challenging is because there's so many different fields of research taught in that course, and it's up to you to find what you've find most interesting and that can sort of instigate your own passion and help you go down that field. So I truly think if anyone takes uh, Bio2CO3 genetics, um, it, it will be a challenging course, but absolutely look beyond that. Look at the different fields that you're taught. And I think there's bound to be some research perspective there that's, that's gonna light a fire in you. Uh, and create some incredible research projects. And like, the doc, like Dr. Zhu just said, He's harboring incredible undergrad students. He's pumping out publication. By the by, the time this podcast is done, you'll probably have another publication uh, than before we started. Um, but it's it's been absolutely incredible to have you on the podcast, Doctor Sue. It's been a privilege for us, and I think a lot of people are going to be very excited to hear about your research and uh, what you look for in undergrads, and most importantly, uh, that undergrads themselves can create such meaningful research and have a incredible ripple effects for years to come. Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. Uh, you have been an incredible uh, host. Thank you.